Well, amen and good morning. Good to be with you this morning. I'm glad to hear you sing. That's always fun and uh, good to be taken back to some of those songs. Uh, I want to do something a little bit unique today. We'll get to that at the end. It's a a little bit of a homework assignment for you. Uh, Don't worry, I don't actually have the authority to make you do it, but so you don't have to do it, but you can give yourself a grade. I'm not going to grade it, but I think will be helpful for us in our spiritual lives. But to get at it, we need to look at what, in my opinion, is like certainly probably the worst story in the New Testament, maybe one of the worst stories in the entire Bible. In my humanness, I will be honest with you, if I was writing the book of Acts, I would have left it out, you know? I mean, you can't put everything in, right? You're not, that's not the goal. Luke was writing Acts, and he didn't include every detail of the early church. This would have been the first one I cut, but he puts it in. Uh, And I think that gives it a degree of credibility that we should pay attention because it's a story where God kills two people, uh, which if you're wanting to start a movement that people opt in for, that's probably not what you want (laughs) to throw out there as one of their first uh, experiences uh, or maybe even an option that God might kill you if you do something wrong. And so it's one of those stories uh, that kind of in the Bible just bothers me and I think is troublesome for a lot of reasons. Uh, There's stuff like this in the Old Testament, right? There's lots, it seems like there's a lot of that in the Old Testament, but then Jesus comes along. And I don't know what you think about Jesus, but he doesn't seem like the sort of guy who would just go around killing people. Um, and so it's really weird that in this community built around the love of Jesus, something like this would happen. So I'm going to read the story, but let me preface it with this statement. This is an observation we just need to let set in our hearts up front. This is a story about God behaving in a way that is not normal. For him, okay? It's not normal. This is abnormal. It's an anomaly. This doesn't mean it's unjustified. doesn't mean it's wrong for God to behave in this way. It's just not the way he normally relates to us humans. And because of that, while there are things that we will learn from this story, there's an aspect of the story that might remain a bit mysterious to us. What I want to suggest is not only is that okay, but that seems like exactly what we would expect as finite mortal humans relating to the infinite almighty God. In fact, I would, this is not the point of the sermon, but I would just throw this out as a tip or a piece of advice. We should be very suspicious of people or theological systems that seem to like solve the problem of God and make him this neat and tidy being that we understand all the things, right? Like there's this tendency we have as humans to constantly tame God. There are lots of stories like the one today that remind us God cannot be tamed. Um, And we need to deal with that. We need to understand that. There's a lot we can understand about God. But there are aspects of the infinite almighty God that might remain mysterious to us. And that's something that we've got to accept as we look at a story like this. I would say the mystery of God is not just okay, but it's exactly what you would expect if God is in fact God. So let me read the story. We're going to observe a few things. And then uh, the homework comes at the end, okay? Here's the story, an awful story. We're going to start in Acts 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this isn't the awful part. 
This is quite delightful, in fact. I mean, look at what Barnabas is doing there. This is uh, something we've already seen in the book of Acts, but it's, it's a truth that is true again and again and again. What you do with your money and possessions declares loudly what you think about God. So we understand this. God does not need our money. Almighty God has plenty of money, right? So he, he doesn't ask us to give because somehow he's like short on cash, but he invites us because of the resources we have to participate in his kingdom. And that is what is happening here with Barnabas. This is the spirit of what we do with giving in church. This is the spirit of what we do with the Christmas offering that Kyle was talking about. What we say every year, though, is vitally important to understand. We want you to engage with God, to interact with the Holy Spirit and say, God, do you want me to give in some way and allow him to lead you to stuff. Presumably, that is what Barnabas is doing. Barnabas is not just giving because he's checking some morality box. Look at how good of a person I am. I gave my money. Now get off my back. That's not what ha is happening here. Barnabas is interacting with God, and somehow the Holy Spirit leads him to do this thing, and so he delights to step into it and do it because he's hearing from God. That's what we want with all of the giving that we do here at Pulpit Rock. We want you interact with God and just follow his lead. And sometimes he might ask you to do what Barnabas does. Other times he might not. And we're okay with that. The point is we let the Holy Spirit lead us with our finances. Now, something else that's happening here is something that Luke does quite a bit. Luke will do this. You will know he will bring up a character uh, just like in a couple sentences, and then you won't hear about it again, and then all of a sudden that character will appear and be incredibly important. And Barnabas is one of those, okay? So he's brought up Barnabas here. In a few chapters, Barnabas is going to become really relevant to the story of Acts. But this practice that Barnabas does is immediately relevant in the next few verses. So look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So that act is not inherently wrong, right? There's not an assumption in the text that if you sold something, you got to give it all to God. Um, it, it wasn't that he sold it and kept some for himself. It's the implication is that he told everyone, yeah, this is all we got for the field. And so he lays it at the apostles' feet, and he's like, we sold the field. This is the entirety of the sale. And we know that because of Peter's response. Look at verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. So what Peter's saying is, listen, it was your money. It's your field. It's your money. You didn't have to lie about it. It was yours to do with what you wanted. Why would you lie to God himself about this money? Now, we don't know how Peter knew that he lied. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit revealed it to Peter. I don't know. Maybe just someone told him. No, I know the truth. Um, but we do know the impact of what Peter said. Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. Next time we ask you to volunteer for something at Pulpit Rock Church, I want you to consider... <laughs> 
there are worse things uh, that you could be on a volunteer team for. But I think it's worth remembering here. Remember what Peter said over, uh, it was a few weeks ago we looked at this, when he heals the lame beggar and everyone's like, wow, this is so amazing. This guy was, he's never been able to walk his entire life and you just healed him. And Peter says, don't think it was me or my righteousness or my power that healed this guy. It was God who did this, right? So if Peter's saying, I shouldn't get the credit for this guy who was miraculously healed, I think we probably should remember that here. And we shouldn't give Peter the credit, or probably blame is the better word, the blame for killing this guy. I think this is something God did. Somehow God steps in and, uh, and he dies. And uh, that's who we should associate with this and also for what comes next. Verse 7, about three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. I don't know who's writing for Peter, but he has some great lines in Acts, doesn't he? Um, Verse uh, 10, at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Um, So objectively, right, this is pretty awful. Like if this happened, I mean, it's been a few thousand years, so we can laugh about it now, but if this happened here, like this is a horrible day, right? Like this is objectively really bad. God kills these two people for being less than truthful about their finances. Now, I said at the beginning, God doesn't normally relate to us that way. That seems obvious, because uh, if he did, we, you know, people would be dropping dead left and right, you know? Um, uh, you know, we need a rotating team of volunteers just carrying out bodies. I, you know, I don't, we don't have that, because God doesn't normally do this. In fact, this may be the only time he did it. I don't think he's done it since, right? Uh, so if you want... You can totally lie to me about what you give here. I don't actually look at what people give here, but you could totally lie to me about what you give here. And I can say with a high degree of probability that you probably won't drop dead. Now, I cannot guarantee it because it did happen once, but I I would say it's very unlikely that you would drop dead. This is really an anomaly. But just because it's an anomaly doesn't mean there's nothing to learn. In fact, I think there's some remarkable things to learn here and some obvious things to learn. For example, I, I think this is obvious, but it needs to be said anyway. Uh, can we see from the story that sin is a bigger deal to God than we may think, right? I mean, I read the story, I'm not even all that offended. I'm like, yeah, you know, they lied. But it seems like a big deal to God. I think we have to be careful about what we do with that conclusion. I think some people, like, piece this together, you read the scriptures, you're like, wow, sin is a really big deal to God, so I should go out and find sinners and make them stop. And I think that's probably a sinful response to this conclusion, but we at least need to see sin is a big deal to God. And I think this is another thing we have to see about sin. Uh, Sin leads to death. Now, in this story, it's literal death, and it is instantaneous death, right? Um, But there's a few examples of that sort of thing in the Bible. You think about the story, very similar to the story of Achan in the book of Joshua. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, like to the first sin, 
Like we understand that that first sin was what started it all. That first sin leads to death. Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, they sin and uh, God tells them this is the moment that death is entering the story. We call it the curse. God uh, speaks this curse and it, it basically means two things that death has now entered the story. First, that you and I physically die. Like all humans, we don't live forever, we physically die. But it also means this that all creation is now trending towards death. Um, it's, it's like the metaphor of death, that everything is decaying. This is why life is so hard, because death has entered the story because of sin. Um, now, the good news is Jesus shows up, right? Jesus shows up and he conquers death in both ways. He conquers physical death, so we die physically, but then we are resurrected to live with him eternally if we have faith in Jesus. But he also conquers death in the sense that all creation is trending towards death. The kingdom of God is reversing that, and there are things that are being redeemed and renewed and restored through Jesus' kingdom, through the reign of Jesus on earth. And so what we see in this story where these people instantly die, it is shocking because of the speed, the swiftness, and the instantaneous nature of this, but it is not shocking because of the result. In fact, it's what you and I experience all the time, just a lot faster. Sin always kills. Sin always destroys. Incidentally, sometimes we, we don't remember this, but we have to remember, that is why God hates it right? Like we think about sin, like God hates sin because you're just so bad. Just, you know, get it together, people. Like he just hates the immoral, immorality of sin. That's not why God hates sin. God hates sin for one reason, because he loves humans, right? And because he understands that sin leads to death, that sin destroys something in us. And so if he loves humans, then he has to hate that which always destroys and always kills, which is sin, right? He doesn't just hate it because you're messing up and you're breaking all the rules. He hates it because it hurts us, right? That's why he hates sin. So we see this, sin leads to death. I think we should ask this, what particular sin leads to death here. Um, that's relevant. Peter says they lied not just to human beings, but to God. Now, lying, okay, lying leads to death. The nature of the lie makes me a little nervous. I'll be honest. Because basically, as, as near as I can tell, the nature of the lie was this. They curated an image of themselves that was not an accurate reflection of reality. So they're like, look how generous we are. But in reality, they were not as generous as they appeared to be. And what is scary to me about that, um, there's a lot in our society that is built around this premise. I mean, all of social media is built around this premise, right? Curating an image of yourself that is not exactly reality. Social media exists to show your highlight reel. None of us are putting our worst moments out there, right? You know, we're showing our best moments, our vacations, our you know, times of date night or you know, times with the kids or whatever. It's all the best of us. That's what we put out there on social media. And that is literally what Ananias and Sapphira are doing here. And God's like, nope, you're dead, right? So that's scary to me. Now, the good news is this, uh, like, uh, you know, God doesn't have a Facebook account um, or Instagram, so we're not actually on social media lying to God. It is true, a little known fact, he does have a MySpace account, uh, which is weird, but it, he doesn't ever really check it. And so when we're on social media, 
<laughs> we're curating this image of ourselves. We're really just lying to each other, not to God, and we're lying to ourselves and like Russian hackers, but that's almost all that we're lying to on social media. But still, I like that feels like an overreaction or at least a big reaction. They, they made an Instagram post, so excited to give to the apostles. Hashtag blessed, hashtag generous, hashtag that's all we got for the field. I don't, you know. And God says, no, we're, not, we're just not going to tolerate that. Why is this such a big deal to God? I don't know for sure. I think this is some of the mystery of the story, is why God reacts in this way. Um, if I was going to speculate, I think it has something to do with this. Maybe there's a teaching moment here that God is helping us see that our attempts to pretend and to present ourselves as if we have it all together are actually killing us. That could be something he's trying to teach the early church, that, that those attempts to maintain our image with others are robbing us of life. He might be saying, hey, it's time in this new community, this kingdom of God, to drop your illusions and pretenses because you are defined by what Jesus has done for you, not by what image you can project to the world. So I wonder if part of the way we read this story is it's God's severe mercy in Ananias and Sapphira's life. Um, he's like, I'm just going to take them home. They're still playing this game of religion, and Jesus came to shatter that. Um, and you know, part of religion is you act like you have it all together. That religion makes liars and pretenders of us all. That's, how, that's what it does. Um, and so God hates that, and he says, we're not doing it that anymore, so you two, you're going to come sit with me on the bench. You don't get to play anymore. That might be part of how we would read this. I'm speculating a little bit. Um, this is a rough place to end the story. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Well, now, yeah, who would dare? Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their numbers. As a result, people brought their sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Wow. I mean, this is a time of just like unprecedented power in the early church, right? Uh, now, it's, it's preceding, we'll look at next week, a time of great persecution that begins for the early church. But there is like a wildness and a power to this moment. I mean, like Peter's shadow was healing people. That didn't even happen when Jesus was on earth, right? I mean, this is a wild moment. It must have been amazing to experience, but also obviously a little scary. So how do we connect this to our journey? Weird story, awful story, interesting story. Uh, I, th I think what I'd like us to do is maybe think a little bit more about Ananias and Sapphira, these two characters. Can we just think about them? So they lied and God killed them. Um, I think it's worth noting, though, that, that we would look at them as, as humans and we would say that probably the biggest issue in their life was not lying. Like, that is a problem for sure. But maybe that, the biggest issue in their life was whatever motivated the lying. Is that fair to say? 
Uh, maybe something about their obsession with what people thought about them. Maybe that was under the surface there. Uh, maybe I'd say it this way. The sin of lying was the result of a deeper issue of brokenness in their life that had maybe to do with their obsession about their image. Does that track? I mean, we can't say it for sure, but maybe that's something uh, that was under the surface. Maybe there's something that they were craving in their hearts about what others would think about them. Or maybe there's something about their image they were really desperately trying to avoid others thinking of them in a certain way, and that is what led them to lie. And so if they didn't die in this moment, like if they kept on living, they, they had some work to do, right? And only a small part of the work would be stop lying. <laughs> that certainly is a part of it, but it'd be a small part. At some point, they would need to address the issues under the surface that lead them to this behavior of lying to the community of faith in the Holy Spirit. That's what I think I want us to think about today, um, is how those things that sometimes we crave or those things that we try to avoid would lead to sin. There's a great uh, ministry called True Face, um, and they have a number of good resources, including a book, The Cure, which you should read it if you haven't. It'll dramatically change the way you interact with God. And they have a, a group Bible study called Crazy Making. Um, this pretty good uh, Bible study for groups, and in it they point out something that I think is really quite insightful. They say this, it is not the sin you're obsessed with. Sometimes it feels like I'm obsessed with this sin. I'm just struggling to stop sinning. They say, it's not the sin you're obsessed with. It is what the sin promises to do for you. That's what you're actually obsessed with. And so I, we look at Ananias and Sapphira. Would we say they're obsessed with lying? Well, maybe, I don't know. I suspect that it is what that lie about selling the field promised to do for them, that was actually the obsession of their hearts that Jesus wanted to heal. Does that make sense? See, if sin was just a behavioral problem, uh, if it was just these behaviors that we do that we get obsessed with, then we wouldn't really need Jesus. We would just need greater willpower. That would be the solution for our sin. But the problem of sin goes so much deeper than just the behavior. It is that desire to pursue the thing our soul craves apart from God. That's what leads us to death. And so for Ananias and Sapphira, I think part of what we're seeing here is there's some desire that they're after, and they quite literally chased that desire to their death. And we read in this passage about how the early church was afraid in this moment. I don't think they were afraid because they're like, oh my gosh, I've lied too. You know, I, like I don't think it was just the behavior that, that filled them with fear. I think what they were realizing is, hey, that's in all of us. These ways that we chase after something. We are all chasing soul desires apart from God, and it is killing us, albeit much more slowly. Jesus wants to set us free from that, you know? So at some point, I think the freedom means we have to become aware, not just of the sinful behaviors, what's the action that I did that was wrong, but of the broken desire that we are chasing uh, trying to fulfill without God, without trusting Him that's under the surface. And when we begin to understand that, it can lead to a different type of freedom. There's a resource in that uh, book called Crazy Making that I thought was really helpful. They pull the concept from another book that I have not read called Addiction and Grace. Uh, but basically, it's a two-category list. 
And on one uh, side is things that I compulsively crave, and on the other side is things I compulsively avoid. And it's building on this idea that sin is not just the bad stuff we do, but it's the strategies that we use to get what our soul craves and to avoid what our soul hates, independent of a relationship with God. Incidentally, this is why you cannot have an exhaustive list of sin, right? As soon as you get a list of those are all the sins a person could do, we'll invent a new one because it is the pursuit of our soul's cravings without trusting God. That is the nature of sin. So sin, it has its hooks in us because it promises what we crave or it promises to help us avoid what we hate. That's what sin does. Um, and we don't sin uh, because we like sin. Uh, it may feel like we sin because we like sin, but really we sin because we don't like trusting God. Go back to the first sin. That was the core of it. I'll, just, I'll meet those soul cravings on my own. It's compulsively trying to get the things that we want without trusting Him. And if we don't understand some of that about ourselves, we'll never be free of the behaviors. We'll just be trading out one sinful behavior. We'll get that one under control and we'll pick up something else. And eventually we'll find a, a list of societally acceptable sins that we feel good enough about that we can start judging other people. So what we need to do, if we actually are interested... And the freedom Jesus has for us is look under the surface to understand what is driving our sinful behaviors. That's where I find this list helpful. I'm going to put it up on the screen. So it's two-category list. On the left is things you crave. On the right is things you compulsively avoid. And I, um, am, I've been realizing a lot this year that in my 40s, I need reading glasses. <laughs> So this is a very small list. Uh, you can take a picture of it if you want, but it also is available in our reflection guide. We do a reflection guide every uh, Sunday for the sermons, uh, that, just a way to interact a little bit more in depth. If you go to pulpitrock.com like this week, or that's the text bulletin link, you can click on reflection guide and this list will be there. And I want you to do that because here is the homework assignment that I have for us. If you look at these two lists, there's some stuff up there that you would expect. You see how it relates to sin. And there's some stuff up there that is really weird and you would never expect it. But it's things we would crave or compulsively avoid. The homework is this. I want you to sit down with this list and the Holy Spirit and prayerfully just say, hey, is there anything on this list that is at work in my life? Is there anything I connect with? Is there something that just I feel in my heart? As soon as I read that word, I'm like, yeah, oh, that's me. And then circle it and make time to really sit with it. Ask the Holy Spirit for insight. Circle those things that you crave. Circle those things that you compulsively avoid. And then I want you to do this. This is the next part of the exercise in this book. Uh, once you've circled something, for each thing you've circled, sit down and just ask the Holy Spirit, what is it about that for me? What am I trying to fix with this? And for each thing, they give you this sentence to finish. I crave or avoid blank. So that's whatever you circle. So I crave or avoid that thing to prove to myself that I am or that I am not blank. That's your real struggle. That's what we're really struggling with. That's what's under the surface with sin. Now, that battle might result in a behavioral sin, but it starts on the inside. It starts with whatever that pursuit is. And it's likely, 
It's likely a battle to become something that in Christ Jesus you already are. But because we don't want to trust God, we want to get it on our own, independent from Him, and it is the pursuit of that thing that leads us to all manner of sin because sin promises to do that thing for us. So after you complete the, the, you know, that sentence for whatever it is that you've circled, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit this question. What would it look like to trust Jesus not just for eternal life, but also for who I am? That's how you get some traction on the battle with sin in your life. What would it look like to trust Jesus, not just, not just for heaven and forgiveness and all that sort of stuff, but also for my very identity, for those things that I chase after day in, day out of my life? And then for extra credit, if you want to really dive into this, I would ponder this question. Can I remember the first time I started thinking this way about myself? Is there a way to invite Jesus into that story? Because I bet for most of us, some of those cravings of our soul are tied to stories in our life that Jesus wants to engage with and heal and press into. Uh, And there might be something about that, that Jesus wants to heal in you so that you can live at peace with yourself and you can understand those cravings. All that stuff's in the reflection guide, so you you can take a picture, but you also can just uh, click on that link and you can make some time for this. Uh, Let's do a couple examples, okay? Uh, Think about Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know what you would say their their struggle is, so they they were lying, but what what is the craving or the compulsive avoiding thing? Uh, This was my best guess. If you look at that first list, second word, approval. This may not be what it was about, but let's just speculate. Maybe for them, they lied because they wanted approval from the community of faith. They wanted Peter's approval. They wanted uh, just to, to feel like, man, I'm accepted by these people. So they finished that sentence. I crave approval to prove to myself that I am what? I don't know. I mean, we can speculate. Maybe it's I, that I'm a good person. That I'm not one of those bad people out there. I'm a good person. Or that I'm worthy of love. Because when you all approve of me, I, I start to think maybe I'm worthy of love. Or maybe it's that I'm a success. I'm not a failure. I'm just I'm so terrified of being a failure. But if Peter says, thank you guys, what a generous gift, then I won't feel like such a failure all the time. And then they'd have to engage and ask, well, what would it look like to trust Jesus with those things, those things that I fear about myself, those things I so desperately want to be, to trust his voice in my life? And maybe they could make some growth in that area. Do you see how that could lead to some real insight and some change? Let's take another one. Let's take one of the weird ones up there. Because there are some weird ones. There are some that, I'll be honest, I'm like, why would you put that on there? Let's, let's take uh, something on the right side. Um, so I compulsively avoid dirt. Do you see that one down there? I compulsively avoid dirt. Are there any neat freaks in the audience uh, today? That's, listen, not a sin. It's not a sin. Um, There's nothing wrong with being a clean person. But it could relate to sin in your life in some ways. Um, So I compulsively avoid dirt to prove that I am blank. Man, that's a hard question if you're compulsively clean. Maybe to prove that I'm someone who has their life together to prove that I'm competent, to prove that I'm acceptable, clean, acceptable, or maybe to prove that I'm not something, to prove that I'm not a screw-up 
like the people I grew up with, you know, or to prove that I'm not out of control. So I keep a tidy house to prove that I'm in control. Do you see how the pursuit of those things might lead to some behavioral sins, but when we pursue them independent of Jesus, um, they, they have all manner of destruction in our spiritual life. And of course, what if instead we chose to trust the voice of Jesus in our life about our fear that we are not acceptable or about our fear that we are a screw-up or that we're not in control of our life? It is the pursuit of anything apart from God that makes us grab onto sin of all sorts of kinds, all, all different kinds. And honestly, it could be anything that we grab onto. So it's an awful story. But maybe, just maybe, Luke put it in to motivate us to look under the surface, to understand that we've we got to look on the inside a little bit, to, to realize what our struggles are about, to pursue some understanding, so that we are not deceived into thinking that our problem with sin is a lack of effort. Do you know that? Your problem with sin is not a lack of effort. We do not sin because we lack willpower. We may lack willpower, but that's not why we sin. We sin because we don't want to trust God. That is why we sin. And the solution to sin is not willpower. It is trusting God. We want to get things that our soul longs for without having to trust God. That is 100% the reason that we sin. And Ananias and Sapphira, they were after something. Maybe it was that good reputation, and so they lied to get it, not because they just liked lying, but because they wanted what the lie promised to give, and that pursuit killed them. Here's the thing. You and I have similar pursuits. Our attempts to get these things without trusting Jesus, they are killing us too, just a lot slower uh, and so we have to realize righteousness and holiness, it is not about effort, it is not about willpower, it is about trusting Jesus. So, your homework assignment is to take some time with that list, sit down, consider it. Now, you don't have to do that. As I said, I have no authority to force you to do this. Um, I'm recommending it, and it will not be graded. We will not check to see if you did it. Uh, and you can just dismiss it. You don't, you don't even have to do it. But I, I, I want to just say this, and I mean this with all my heart. If you want some insight. I think it's there for you. I think the Holy Spirit is eager to talk to you about what's going on under the surface. I think the Holy Spirit is tired of our prayers of, God, help me resist that sin, because he's been trying to talk to us about what is happening under the surface of that sin our entire lives. And if we would make the time and get curious about, God, what is that broken desire in me that I am constantly pursuing that is bigger than just the behavior? I think he would tell us. I think he would reveal that to us. And so that insight is there for us if we want it. And I'm going to trust in faith that you do and that you'll make time to engage with some of this. And so let me pray over you as you think about that. God, I pray for my friends here and I pray for myself would you give us earth-shattering insight into what is happening in our soul? Would you help us never to be deceived into thinking that sin is just a surface-level behavioral problem? Would you help us to understand what is happening on the inside in us? And Lord, will you heal it? Will you heal those broken desires? Will you reveal them and heal them, God? We trust you with it, and we're so thankful 
so thankful that you see those things in us. Would you entrust us with that knowledge and lead us to greater trust in you? In Jesus' name, amen.